you shouldn't say everything that you're thinking, but I'm just going to. I almost started reading the lyrics to the song that we're going to sing out of the message. It was just like, oh, I'll just read. Instead, I'm going to give you some announcements. It's going to be pretty great. Um, if you feel it, fall is in the air. Yeah. I know for many of you, you have just started your back-to-school rhythm, and you might be coming in here a little sideways, um, but I hope that, that things begin to settle and you start to find that rhythm um, for yourselves. Um, and with that in mind, um, we intentionally push off the start of our fall quarter of life groups so that you can settle, so that you can kind of figure out what does my life look like before I say yes to another thing. Um, but I want to invite you into life groups, um, not because we need life groups to be full and we're afraid we won't have enough. We have plenty of groups, and we have a, a high percentage of Brookview people that are gathering together weekly in homes. And I just so desperately, if you're not a part of that, want you to be a part of that. Um, because I know what that has done for me. Specifically, oftentimes, I don't know what's coming down the pike for me. And having this community where I show up and I get to be myself and I get to just kind of lean in and figure out what is God doing in my life. And I have people that support me and pray for me. Um, it's a really beautiful thing. And I just want you to have that. Um, but even more than that, I think one of the neatest things for me is that I get to show up for other people as well. And this Christian life, this following Jesus, it's not an easy thing to do. And there are times where if I were just to do this singularly by myself, I would be so boring, you guys, because I'm just not super introspective by nature. And I watch other people wrestle and grapple and share their stories, and I'm encouraged, and my faith gets deepened, and my walk with Jesus becomes so much more mature because I've done it in community with other people that are different than me. And so that's my invitation to you. Would you consider being a part of the groups? Um, they go from October to December, just before Christmas. That's our fall quarter. And we like you to be able to have an on-ramp and an off-ramp if you need it as well and not have to commit to an entire year of meeting with other people. And so if you think, ah, I might want that, I'm considering it, um, would you reach out to us so that we can give you information that you might need? And the way that you would do that would be to fill out your communication card that's online at brookfewchurch.com forward slash contact, or you can text the word group to that number. Um, we know that in the midst of COVID and variants on the rise and things changing all the time, um, we will have in-person groups and we will have online groups as well. And the in-person groups, we allow people to gather at their comfort level what makes sense for them. And so we'll always be very honest with you about what that environment is. And hopefully, you'll be able to find a good fit for yourself so that you don't have to live this ebb and flow alone and without people. So please sign up for groups. Please go to your online communication card. You don't have to mark that box. If you already know that you're in a group and your group leader has reached out to you, you are all set. You don't have to click that box again. Um, but maybe there's something else that you want to respond to and reach out in some way. Maybe you have a prayer request or a comment that you want to make. If you're watching at home, you just want to tell us you're here. I want to say hi, Bob and Wendy in Hawaii. I'm not jealous of you in the least. Um, actually, I'm not. I'm having a great life right here. Um, okay, don't say everything you're thinking. Um, Canahans, I, we love hearing from you guys. Um, anyway, whoever else I've met, shout out to the peeps at home. And again, turn off your ESPN apps, your fantasy football. Don't watch it. We're here to meet with, with God, and, and we'll take care of football later. So, um, that's it. Authorities have traced a new deadly virus back to this seafood market in the Today, city the of World Wuhan. World Health Organization 
officially announced that this is a global pandemic. The U.S. does not have enough coronavirus testing. The unemployment testing. rate tripling to 14.7%. Coronavirus case is still high across the country. Students, teachers, and parents have been forced to adapt to distance learning. The Golden State, a record-breaking 2 million-plus acres have burned. The nation erupted into scenes of chaos, violence, and widespread destruction into the early morning hours. From Brazil to Iran, thousands have gathered to show solidarity with U.S. protests over the killing of George Floyd. Pfizer is shipping out the first doses of the coronavirus vaccine as we speak. Now, we can't force you to take a jab in the arm, but there are many jobs, perhaps, that can prevent you from working if you decide not to get vaccinated. You know, people are angry. I mean, on the Internet, I see people are threatening to boycott restaurants and follow these guidelines. Several countries have offered assistance to Haiti, including the U.S., Panama, Colombia and Mexico, among Family others. Family members and children trying to get to the airport but being whipped back and beaten by Taliban fighters. That's encouraging, isn't it? You know, in the last year and a half, it feels like our world has been turned upside down. From the massive changes brought on by COVID to political upheaval to uh, social justice issues, secularization has sped up to warp speed. Less and less people are being guided by faith in God in general, and even fewer are trusting in Jesus in particular. And so as our culture becomes more and more secular, it's leading to tons of challenges for those of us that are trying to follow Jesus. So in this series, Strange Times, we're looking at several of those challenges. So here are a few of the things that we've been thinking about. Here are a few of the challenges that are, that are emerging that we've been thinking about. First of all, individualism. More and more people have less and less meaningful, close relationships. We've seen that 40% of Americans currently have zero to one confidant. Zero to one, like a person that they can, that in their life that they can really talk to. Zero to one, 40%. Almost half our country has nobody to process pain with. As a society, like we, we greatly value autonomy, right? But it's coming at a high price. And this is a major challenge for the church because we are, by definition, a community, right? We are a family, but we are being formed by a culture of, hey, be true to yourself. You do you. You just speak your truth. A culture where, for many, most relationships are becoming transactional. I'm only interested in you if you can do something for me. And that kind of community is hollow and shallow, and not very safe. The truth is, intimacy only resides within the safety of commitment. You can have autonomy, or you can have intimacy. You have to pick. So as a church, in the middle of this culture where this is happening, how do, how do we experience relational closeness? How do, how do we live together as family in a thick web of relationships? To do this now actually requires us to be countercultural. It is becoming abnormal to live in any kind of real community. Okay, second challenge. Second challenge is just a host of what we would maybe call idolatrous ideologies. There are so many moral visions for human flourishing that are making their way through our culture. Visions that in many regards do not align at all with the way of Jesus. And many of these ideologies that are taking root in our culture are essentially attempts to usher in the kingdom of God without God. Like people are trying to, they want and are trying to build this, this kind of utopia, a society of love and justice and abundance without God, without Jesus. They want the kingdom without the king. But for us, at our core, we, we believe the king is actually the best part of the whole deal, right? I mean, I, mean I, don't, I don't just want healthy community. I don't just want justice or equality or personal freedom. I want that stuff. I do. I, I want that stuff. That's kingdom stuff. But I want it to come in conjunction with 
the king. For me, the best part of the kingdom is the king. And yet the temptation right now, like on both the far right and the far left, is to take one issue or another and make it the ultimate thing, to try to bring about the kingdom while forgetting the king. Jesus came to bring heaven to earth, to be sure, but you won't have the kingdom where the king is absent. Okay, a third challenge is moral relativism, and much of it stems from just the philosophy that says, hey, you, you be true to yourself with one caveat, as long as it doesn't, what? Hurt anybody or harm anyone. Just be true to yourself as long as it doesn't harm anyone. Here's the problem. Harm requires an agreed-upon definition. If we don't have any agreed-upon standards of good and evil, then how is it that we know what harms people? Who knows? I mean, what is a good person these days? So many of you are, are like, you're feeling the chaos of that in your soul, in our culture. There are, there are a thousand different definitions of what a good person is because of moral relativism. And then fourth challenge that we've talked about a lot is the digital revolution. In churches over recent years, there's been a lot of talk about the dangers of the digital age to our ability to mature spiritually. Um, as one sage spiritual leader, Ronald Roheiser, puts it, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. But recently, it's turned an even darker shade. The problem isn't just distraction and addiction, as if that's not enough, but the rise of tribalism and groupthink. Digital algorithms that are creating more and more extremism. We're, we're, you guys, we're watching each other go off the deep end, are we not? There's conspiracy theories, and, and we're, we're seeing the rise of cancel culture and a torrent of fear and angry. People are so scared and so mad and so tribal that it feels like you can't even have a conversation anymore. Because you say one wrong word and you trigger that inner brain sorting you into the enemy category. I mean, for all of the talk of tolerance in our culture right now, it sure is becoming highly judgmental. Friendships are ending, families are splitting apart, and many churches are being ripped apart at the seams right now. So how do we, as followers of Jesus, as family, live in peace in an age of fear and anger and hate? How do we function together as family in this climate? And then one final challenge related to all this is just injustice. Like, there is a ton of talk right now in our world about social justice, which I welcome, I'm so grateful for. These are important, critical conversations. But the secular vision of social justice often differs from the vision of Jesus. Jesus cares very much about social justice, but when we think about how to fight injustice, you guys, we have to be so, so thoughtful. Because Jesus warned, and history is full of cautionary tales of those who become the very evil they set out to fight. I mean, how do we do justice in such a way that we don't become the oppressor? More and more, the digital mob is becoming tyrannical. So as followers of Jesus, like, how do we navigate that? Okay, these are just a few of the cultural shifts that are raising challenges for us. And I am just here to cheer you all up this morning. I just want to stand up and say hallelujah right now. Yes, bring it. But we have to be real. And we have to be real. Our, our shifting culture is filled with challenges for us. And yet, okay, this is where the sermon turns. And yet, I have so much hope for the future of the church. And I'm not just talking about our church, but the, the church of Jesus, you guys, all over the world. It, it's, it's, it's important, I think, for us to stop and recognize every once in a while that the church is exploding around the world. Like, I think we could stand to be reminded of this a lot more. As Jesus followers, we can, we can be so America-centric. But the church of Jesus is actually thriving around the world right now. It might not feel that way if you're an American and you're just kind of staring at Facebook all day. 
But on the whole, the global church is on the move. Growth, expansion, depth, it is exploding. People are learning the way of Jesus. And it's particularly true in Southeast Asia and China and Iran. Did you guys know that the church is often at her best when cultural hostility is at its worst? Hostility often serves to make a smaller church, but a stronger one. It tends to make the committed more committed and the nominal walk away, which is sad and we have to grieve that. But historically, as cultural hostility escalates, the church often gets stronger. And these days, get this, you guys, you guys know where the church is growing fastest in the world right now? You're close. Uh, the church is growing fastest these days in Iran. Iran. Think about that. Iran, where it is full-on illegal to evangelize and to gather in the name of Jesus. Some argue that it has become the fastest-growing church movement in history, even more than the, like the house church movement in China over the last few decades. Now, in, in our culture, we're not facing anything close to that dire, right? For us, hostility toward, you know, hostility toward Jesus looks nothing like Iran. But, but as our culture is undergoing seismic shifts, and as our culture shifts from like indifference toward the church to like more of a like hostility, the same principle holds true for us as for our brothers and sisters in places that are facing opposition that we can't even imagine. You guys, this, this actually could be our finest moment as the church in America. As followers of Jesus in this time and place, this could be the moment, not of our death, but when you think about it, it could be the moment of our like rebirth. As author and social commentator William Faulkner once said, it's hard believing, but disaster seems to be good for people. I mean, what, think about this. What if we could like flip this moment from one of anxiety to one of possibility? From, oh no, individualism and, and idolatrous ideologies and conspiracy theories and angry people everywhere to, you know what, how could this cultural moment and even the hostility that is woven into it, how could that catalyze the best impulses of the Spirit of God within us? Jesus is inviting us to live in a way that I think is, is beautiful. It takes courage, it takes wisdom. It takes strength, it takes perseverance, and it takes creativity. But it is a way that I am convinced leads to human flourishing. But you guys, to live this way, we don't actually need the culture to be friendly to us. We don't. No matter what happens in our culture, we can continue to live the way. In the first century, the culture was downright hostile toward the way of Jesus, right? And yet, what you see is that it spread like wildfire throughout the Roman world from underneath. What if this cultural moment doesn't, like, destroy us? What if it becomes a time of refining and deepening? What if our rising challenges actually serve to set us apart? Kind of in the way that Jesus had in mind all along. As David Brooks said, he's an author from the New York Times, as David Brooks said, culture changes when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them. And as I've said, we're a small group of people in the broader culture. Like in greater Seattle, I don't know what percentage Jesus' followers make up. It's small. But right now, if you look in our culture, there are a lot of people asking a lot of questions. A lot of the facade of secularism and individualism and all the isms of our time, what's happening is in this season, in this moment, those are starting to crumble. And many people are looking around trying to find a better way. Guys, what are we, what are we even doing here? Like, what is a church? Well, when you really think about it, we're just an alternative society built around the way of Jesus. We're an alternative society built around the way of Jesus. For so long, the church has not been an alternative society. It is really difficult to, to tell the difference between the church and everything else that's going on in the world. 
We are an alternative society built around the way of Jesus. And that requires a couple of things. First, we're a society. We're a family. We're, we're like brothers and sisters living together. That means we know each other. We love each other. We challenge each other. We are connected to one another. Like over the last several decades, for many, the church has actually become something else. It's not a family that you belong to. It's not an alternative society. It's just a service you go to. Right? It's like you watch a movie. Right? You go and you evaluate. Did I like it? Did it move me? I mean, churches should have like Rotten Tomatoes scores, don't you think? <laughs> did, did I like the message? We can get that now on Facebook. You can give a thumbs up or thumbs down or whatever. Uh, or sorry, on YouTube. Um, if you're thinking about responding, please do a thumbs up. But you, you evaluate, what do people do? We're not participating in a family or an alternate society or a, we're, we're, just, we're just going to a service, a show, and we're evaluating. Did I like the message? Did I like the music? Guys, I mean, can we be real? That, that was never Jesus' vision for what a church is supposed to be. We're to be a family. We're to be an alternative society. But the second part of this is that that society, that family then is built around learning and practicing and living the way of Jesus. We, we are always learning from Jesus his way, his alternate vision for human flourishing. There's so many visions in our world for human flourishing right now. Jesus has one, and that's ours. Then the more and more we are learning to live into his vision, Jesus, Jesus, you guys, he showed us a totally different way to be human. And today I want to explore a little bit of his vision, just a little bit more. The, the most complete description of Jesus' vision for human flourishing, like the most complete sermon that we have in Scripture is in Matthew, and it has come to be called what? The Sermon on the Mount. So in the beginning of COVID, if you guys can even remember back, like there was a different world. And in the beginning of COVID, we, we were just starting a series on it, and then, bam, COVID, remember? And the timing of that whole thing for me, it just seemed like extraordinary. It seemed like, wow, that was, this is divine. Because as COVID unfolded, we looked line by line to the vision of Jesus for human flourishing. And today, I, I want us to review a, just a couple of ideas from Jesus, because I think these are especially relevant for what's happening in our culture right now. So here's the backdrop for the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. Jesus has been going all over Palestine healing people. He's been healing the blind and the deaf and those with all kinds of diseases and lepers. And he's been casting out demons. He's been delivering people. But everywhere that he went, he would also stop and teach. And his messages, we're told by Matthew, were always about the kingdom of God. Everywhere he went, Jesus kept saying to the people, repent for the kingdom of heaven has what? It has come near. He was announcing the good news, the gospel. He was saying, essentially, life together with God, in God's favor, in God's presence, that life has now become available on earth to ordinary people. Because of my life and my presence with you, he was saying, it is now among you. It is now available to you. And so people wanted to know, okay, yeah, but who can be a part of this? What sorts of people are eligible to, to experience this? So one day, amid a full day of healing and delivering people, Jesus goes up on a hillside and he sits down to teach. And he says some shocking things about who it is that can be blessed. Stuff that nobody expected. He says stuff like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed, blessed are the meek. In other words, it's not just the rich and successful and spiritually educated. Blessed now are the people everybody assumed were cursed by God. Blessed are the people everybody assumed God had written off. The sick, the diseased, the meek, the broken, the unspiritual. The point is the, the kingdom is here and it is available to anyone, anyone at all. Anyone can now start to live a kingdom life. Anyone can be forgiven and can, can start this new life with God. Now, that's, that's all great, but what would that actually look like, lived out? I mean, how would, how would someone go about practicing that in their everyday world? Well, that's what the rest of Jesus' sermon is all about. It, it, it's, 
like it spans three chapters in Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And after the opening, the rest of the sermon is just pictures or illustrations of how a person with a heart aligned with God's might actually go live. How they might deal with marriage and money and worry. How they might deal with their enemies and injustice and anger and all of that stuff. And you guys, right now, we are living in a world that is so angry. It's so angry and it's also so judgmental. So I want us to look at what Jesus has to say about managing anger and judgment. Because he's inviting us into a different way of living. And it is beautiful. So, okay, let's start with anger. Jesus says to the crowds on the hillside that day, he says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So Jesus has has been talking about the kingdom of God now being present on earth, that it's everywhere around us, that is available to to all of us at every moment, that if if we're able to perceive it and align ourselves with it, stunning things are possible in us and through us. And so he now starts to explain how this might affect anger. He's saying you, you are being invited into a different kind of life, a life defined by love and peace. But, but if you think love is just about murder avoidance, you're sadly mistaken. Murder avoidance is kind of a low bar, wouldn't you say? So he says, let's take it up a notch. I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister is subject to judgment. Wow. Now, he's, he's not saying, if you get mad at someone, God is going to send you to hell. Okay? Uh, if that's the case, we're all in trouble. What he's saying is that experiencing the kingdom of God is actually possible right now. The kingdom isn't just some far-off future place you go when you die. Now, there is more of the kingdom to come in the future for sure, and crossing over after death is all a part of that. But the kingdom is actually available to experience right here, right now. And it happens when our will becomes aligned with God's will. When his values become our values and we begin to live out those values. But when we allow anger to fester and we feed it and we pet it and we we let the anger sprout into contempt and hatred, we can be sure that we are no longer participating with God in his kingdom. So Jesus continues. Here's all of verse 22 now. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. I don't know about you. I've never said Raka to anyone. So I'm good on this one. So I think we can move on. No, Raka was a, was a word that is... It's like famously difficult to translate into English. So most English translations, they just kind of leave the original Aramaic word because translators are like, I don't even want to touch that one. But it was, it was essentially an expression of absolute hatred and contempt. Jesus says, when you look at another person like that, you are no longer aligned with God's vision of that person. Even calling someone a fool... Jesus goes on to say, kind of puts someone in a type of box. It gives us the excuse to then write them off, to cancel them, right? And that's when healing and reconciliation become impossible. In our culture right now, man, you guys, we are so quick to label each other. To put somebody in a box and then just write them off as one of those people. But Jesus warns us that is not the way of kingdom people. And then he gives us two very earthy, very practical examples of how this might look as an alternative. 
two situations, he gives us two situations that could happen in real life, and then a hypothetical of how we might respond. Here's the first one. It says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, and then come offer your gift. Now, it's really important that we understand that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not piling onto us a whole bunch of more legalism. He's not giving us hard and fast rules to follow. He's not saying something like, hey, you can't ever go to church or worship God until you've gone out into the world and repaired every broken relationship you've ever had in your life. The point here is that spiritual life lived through rituals is not to be done instead of spiritual life lived through relationships. To engage in spiritual activities is, is good and life-giving. Uh, you, know, you know I believe in that. The fact that we're here together, that's awesome. Keep doing that. Um, doing, doing the rituals and doing those, that's, that's critical. But if that stuff is done to the neglect of human relationships... Something is going horribly wrong. To engage in religious routines while ignoring relational breakdown, that just misses the whole point of living in the kingdom. Instead, when something goes haywire in a relationship, somebody needs to take initiative and step up and start a conversation. Somebody needs to say, you know what? Something feels off, and I, 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 really, wanna, I really want us to get things back on track. Somebody needs to lead toward understanding and to lead toward healing. But here's what we tend to do. This is what we do. This is what happens in our culture. We sit back and we think, well, yeah, there's a problem, but let them come to me. If they think I've wounded them, then let them say something. And if it's me that's been wounded, then I tend to think, you know what? They're the one that hurt me. They should come and apologize to me. But Jesus is saying, okay, here's what kingdom people do with conflict. They take initiative. They take initiative to talk it out and work it out. And they do it with grace and sensitivity and humility. And they take responsibility wherever they can for their own part of the problem. And they ask a whole lot of questions, which lead to more questions. And they really listen, but they take initiative. You guys, I, I think about the, just the growth in my relationship with Jen. Um, now, some of you guys look at us and, and you think, I, I have no idea what you think. <laughs> but people like to, now less in our culture, but especially people like to put pastors up on a pedestal. If you're doing that, knock it off. Um, and sometimes people will look at pastors and then they just assume that their wives are like lucky. Like, like that lady hit the jackpot. Like, that guy, oh, he must be an amazing husband and father and vacuumer of the carpets, you know. I'll tell you what, my wife puts up with a lot. In fact, um, you guys, I do dumb stuff all the time without even knowing it. So thankfully, she brings it to my attention. Yeah. Yes, right. I'd never know. I'm so much more holy because of you, my love. And you guys, to be honest, one of the hallmarks of our marriage has been that we, we, we truth, like we, we, we walk through issues, we talk through issues. And here's what I will tell you. I hate it. It's really hard. It's really hard. And in fact, the, the first few years of our marriage, and I've talked about this a lot over the years, first few years of our marriage, were, they were a hell at times. Like, it just, there were seasons where it felt like we had a major confrontation, discussion, carefrontation, if you like, uh, every day. And it was just exhausting. And I remember just like night after night going to bed feeling defeated, like, oh God, this is impossible. She is impossible. And Jen would be so upset that she wasn't sleeping. And so eventually I would lay in bed. And then I was so mad and upset that I couldn't sleep. And so eventually I was, I'd be like, you know what? I should probably pray. And eventually in the middle of praying, in the middle of the night, I would sense God say, 
get up. Don't give up. Go talk to her. Like, take initiative. And so, sometimes I would. And I would go meet up with her and go back into the whole thing with a better attitude, more open, and I would take way more responsibility for my role in the problem, and inevitably she would move my way and I would move hers. And over time, those conversations, thank God, have become less and less frequent. They still happen sometimes. I don't look forward to them, but we are committed to having them. But here's the big payoff. You guys, after years of doing this, years of learning how to better love each other, she is absolutely my best friend in the whole world. There is nobody that I would rather spend time with than Jen Huguenin. But it has taken so much work for us to get there and dedication. If you want intimacy with another person over a long period of time, then someone has to take initiative when anger and conflict arises. And so Jesus says, you be that person. You take initiative. And that leads to Jesus' second very tangible illustration. This is, again, just another hypothetical that could come up. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be be thrown in prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So in Jesus' second illustration, he says, here's the scenario. Go with me on this one. Let's say that the conflict has gotten legs. Let's say it's turning into a full-on court dispute. What if you went and tried to talk it out instead of going to court? Because if you can't work this thing out, it might get really ugly and really expensive. You guys, do we even need to be taught this? Like, is that not common sense? Um, If you sit back in anger and they sit back in anger, this thing might, might explode into something and get really expensive and really ugly. And so how about before all of that happens, you try talking it out? Who knows? You might actually be able to work it out. Now, because we tend to love legalism in the churches, some Christians read Jesus this way. It is wrong to ever go to court or be involved in the legal process. And there are Christians that will allow people to do horrible things to them, walk all over them in ways that are completely unjust. Guys, that is not what Jesus is saying. The point is not that it's wrong to go to court. The point is anger and conflict tend to escalate. And so why not take initiative before it blows up into something like that? So let me just pause right here and ask a really important question. What relationship in your life needs you to take initiative? What relationship in your life is not everything that it could be right now? The heart of what Jesus is saying is, be different from the way the culture handles conflict. Don't wait on them, you go. Take initiative. Go sit down face-to-face or Zoom screen to Zoom screen, but do it in the most personal way that you can. Go ask questions and do your best to fully understand where they're coming from, and then once you've done that, share your heart and see if you can move past whatever it is that's going on. You guys, this seems so simple, and yet it is utterly countercultural. This is not how our world works. We put each other in categories, and then we write each other off. And this unhealthy way of relating has become like a cultural epidemic, and I am watching my brothers and sisters in Christ get swept up into it in how they relate to people they love and people outside of the people they love. And you think about, like, what if we lived as family in an alternative society that actually did anger differently? What if we responded to each other and the outside world differently? What, what, if, what if we found a better way to live and others joined us? 
And that leads to what Jesus had to say, has to say about judging each other. Let's jump to, this is Matthew chapter 7. Okay, we were in chapter 5. We're jumping to chapter 7 now, toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Some very famous words of Jesus. He says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Hmm. How's that going for everybody? Now, sometimes people hear those words, and they assume that Jesus is saying something like, you should absolutely never be critical of someone else or tell them that they're wrong. You should never form negative opinions about anyone or anything. It is always wrong, you know, to judge people. So even though someone else's thought patterns or behavior may be leading to obvious destruction for themselves or others, you have to learn to approve of it and accept it. Obviously, that cannot be what Jesus is saying. Okay, that cannot be what he means. Because Jesus called people out and he confronted people on stuff all the time. He confronted his disciples all the time. I, I mean, if there's times where I'm like, man, it would have been really cool to be one of Jesus' disciples. And why? You know, I'm like, no, actually, that would have been terrifying. Um, or, or you think about how he challenged the Pharisees, right? They were the religious leaders, but they were leading people in many of the things they were doing. They were leading people away from God. And Jesus did not sit there saying, oh, well, different people think different things. It's all good to each his own. Who am I to judge? You know, one person's approach to God is just as good as another's. I mean, listen to some of the stuff Jesus said in Matthew 23. Matthew 23 is awesome, by the way. Um, Jesus is just going on a little rant toward the Pharisees. And by the way, I'm only going to read a little bit of it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. I mean, I could just go on and on. This is really uplifting stuff. Clearly, Jesus did not believe that everything everyone does is okay. And clearly, Jesus isn't teaching us that we have to learn to accept and approve of everything everybody does. So in that case, when he says, do not judge, what in the world is he saying? Well, I think a great way to paraphrase what he's saying here is this. I want you to apply the golden rule to the way you judge people. Which, if you put it in those terms, sounds like this. Judge unto others as you'd have them what? Judge unto you. Now, this is powerful, and this is so important. Jesus is saying, okay, here's what I want you to do. I I want you to take the same approach in judging others that you would want others to take in judging you. Now, see, I know how I want others to judge me. I want them to be really slow to jump to conclusions. I want people who judge me to say, yeah, he's definitely got some issues, but there may be more to it than we know. So let's be very slow to judge because, you know what, we probably don't know the whole story. Like, I want slack when I'm judged, don't you? Yet, I don't want so much slack that people don't challenge me. I actually need people to call out the best in me. The people that have formed me most in my life in the right direction are people that have called me out. I need that. I want people that will love me enough to confront me sometimes. But I want the people to, like, who correct me to still love me and still believe in me. I, I don't want them to like, put me in a box and then write me off. I mean, judgment isn't, isn't 
disagreeing or calling out or challenging people. That's not what Jesus is talking about. We have to disagree, call out, or challenge people sometimes. Judgment is defining people by their faults and failures. Judgment holds people down. Correction is intended to lift them up. And this is why judging people is so damaging. It sets limits on, on, on like what they can do, and it sets limits on who they can become. But not judging people doesn't mean that we ignore all their faults or their problems or their failures. It means we refuse to define people by those things. We refuse to label them, to put them in a box and then write them off. In judgment, we see the fault, and that's all we see. Now, Jesus goes on and explains further famous words. This is awesome. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And here Jesus points out something critical and this is so huge. To, to see clearly enough to actually be able to help someone else, my heart has to be healthy. I have to be coming at this thing from the right place. Okay, when my heart is off, I'm likely to just do a whole lot more damage. So Jesus starts verse 3 by saying, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Like, that's a, why? Why do you truly care about this other person's problem? What's, what's motivating you to care? What's motivating you to even notice? And you guys, when you think about it, that's a penetrating question. And if we were willing to just pause and ask ourselves that question, I think it would cut off most of our judgment at the knees. What if instead of executing judgment, we paused long enough to ask, what's truly motivating me to care about this, this other person's issue or this other group of people's issue at all? What's going on inside of me that's causing me to be so concerned about this other person's problem? In other words, Jesus is saying to me, Jason, how come you're so excited and motivated to think about their problems and not your own? And that's, that's really simple. That's an easy, there's an easy answer to that. The more I focus on their problems, the better I feel about me. Right now, you guys, in our culture, the self-righteousness is suffocating. The virtue signaling and the self-righteousness. It, here's what's happening. Is people are just like, we are the good people and they are the bad people. You guys, can I just say something? We are all a mixed bag. We're all deeply flawed. Just so you know, I have a big stinking plank in my eye. And so do you. So if we're categorizing people and then we end up feeling like I'm in the good group, I'm a good person, but they're in the bad group, they're evil, they're wicked people. If that's what I come away with, then I can be sure that I'm being influenced not by the Holy Spirit, but by the evil one. And yet to see sin and just look the other way is also a massive problem. Sometimes when people hear this passage and, and from Jesus, and they think, okay, well, I got a lot of issues. I got a lot of faults and failures, and so, you know what, I can't really help other people with their stuff, because, like, I got to get all my stuff sorted out before I could ever help anyone. You guys, that's insane. If that were true, we would all be disqualified. Nobody would be helping anybody. You, you do not have to be perfect. But here's what you do need. You need to be capable of seeing beyond other people's flaws. Now, here's the beauty in this for those of us that follow Jesus. This is exactly how Jesus loves us. We see it modeled for us in him. We are being apprenticed by the very one who shows us the way. This is how Jesus sees you. I mean, think about that. Jesus sees beauty in you that you would not believe. He sees your flaws and your faults very clearly, but he refuses to define you by them. I mean, like, 
Think about how harsh Jesus was with the Pharisees. Was that not harsh? It's pretty harsh. And, the, and, and in this scathing rebuke that we read earlier, Jesus just blasted them. Well, they were the teachers of God's people, and they had a lot that was wrong, and their brand of religion was excluding and hindering people. And so Jesus had to challenge it. He had to. But at the same time, Jesus loved the Pharisees. Sometimes we forget that. Jesus loved the Pharisees. He utterly refused to write them off. I mean, the Pharisees, when you think about it, they orchestrated Jesus' arrest and his trial and his crucifixion. The nails were pounded into his hands and feet. And they were the reason, the Pharisees. And yet even then, Jesus refused to put them in a box. He said, Father, forgive them, for they what? They don't know what they're doing. Even at their very ugliest, Jesus refused to define them by it. And the reassuring thing is, this is exactly how he views you and me. And I'm thankful. Because I got a lot of flaws. And I got a lot of failures. And so do you. But Jesus will never write you off because of them. And this is why apprenticing under him is like nothing else in this world. This is why his moral vision for humanity is so dang compelling to me. The more that we interact with Jesus who treats us this way, the freer we become to actually learn to treat one another this way. And this is so countercultural. It is not the world that we live in at all. But you guys, this is the stuff that changes a culture from the inside. This is how the way of Jesus swept through the Roman Empire in the first place. And this is still what it will take to captivate our culture. Culture changes when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copied them. Father in heaven, I thank you that despite all of my flaws and failures and weaknesses and just terrible decisions and just the selfishness that is core to, to who I am, that you, you see beauty in me that I can't even fathom. And you are calling out that beauty day after day after day. And you're feeding it. And God, I think about all of the failures and the flaws of the nation of Israel and the church over the last 2,000 years, and yet you refuse to give up, to put us in a box and to write us off and give up. You just keep fighting for us to find you and find freedom and find, find life in Jesus Christ. There are so many visions in our world right now for what will lead to human flourishing. Jesus, your vision is the best that I could ever imagine. And I pray for us that as individuals and as a family together, you would teach us to live into that vision in a way that brings life and flourishing. We need you. God, we need you. Amen.